we leave poor Elizabeth behind. The town shrinks and falls away with each kilometre we put between us as we turn our attention to the west. Can you taste the wild? she asks. I look out across the lake and laugh. Indeed, but everything is wild here, even its captivity. The grass in the eastern cape is low and green and grows in bunches. The vegetation is wet and healthy. The mist is weighted, anchored down by humidity and condensation. It is spring, and the rain sits heavy on the air. Here, early morning doesn't break on the back of streaming rays. But gradually, as if in compromise, the sun and moon trade places in the sky. This is a journey that begins in the Eastern Cape and follows the famous garden route along the beautiful South African coastline. The story begins as we leave the city limits. It is early September, and the changing season brings with it the promise of spring rain. I was lucky enough to gain access to the nature and game reserves, to go into the backwoods as they're called, to learn about the game, the predators, and the more intricate details of the farm. It is an entirely different language, and yet I find myself reminded of home in the strangest of ways. Growing up in the Pacific Northwest of Canada, I never expected to be reminded so much of the temperate pine-filled forests, but they too have their language, one you can almost feel in the air. A sense that nature is boundless, and you are but the smallest of moments stepping in. There were days when the rain washed down in sheets, and others when the sun streamed down so strongly it seemed to bleach the colour from the grass. Each day I felt like I learned and reminisced in equal parts. It had been so long since I felt the land, felt the vibration of the herds, found myself tuned in and present, always listening, be it to facts or for traces of the animals. It felt like coming into a scene midway through, where all you can do is look and listen and grasp for context, wishing desperately for gaps and questions to fill themselves in. I felt like the eucalyptus, invasive and out of place, called alien trees, they were brought over by European settlers. And since, their deep-reaching roots drink the groundwater, drying out the land and causing erosion. And here the trees tell stories. I guess that's the same as home. They tell the story of the land, of the climate and how it's changed, how we've changed it. They begin, origins tied to ours, like the makings of a ritual weaving and wrapping its way through time, myths of their own making. At home, we have ghost trees, white bark pine twisted and gnarled with the winter wind. They can be found deep in the mountains, in the coldest seasons at the highest elevation. These skeletons remain like ghosts along the range, white and haunting like their namesake. These ghosts tell the story of warmer winters, beetle infestation and blister rust, a disease that causes lush green needles to turn red as if dipped in blood. But the trees here are anything but dead. White as snow, the fever tree has its own origins shrouded in a similarly ominous myth covered in spikes as long as your fingers, those unfortunate enough to seek shelter underneath its roots would fall ill with malaria. This is how they got their name. European settlers thought malaria-infected mosquitoes laid their larvae in the trees. Of course, they also grew in marshy swampland, where mosquitoes naturally breed. But still these stories stick, 
fact and fiction collide with time, and now the fever tree is a well-known symbol for tonic water, ironically, a source of quinine in common malaria treatment. And this is the point. Definitions change all the time, and yet we hold on to them, steeped in rituals we cannot know. This is what I find fascinating, that we can feel these energies all around us. We sense their protection, plea and warnings. We sense boundaries and borders uncharted on any map, all showing the limits to our so-called comprehension. And there's so many things to learn, sometimes just in understanding what and how to ask, in seeking out these incredible differences and irreverence in listening. I have learned so many things and have an infinite amount more ahead of me. Perhaps that's rather redundant, but nevertheless, it needs to be said. I learned that dussies, a kind of rat found on rocky outcroppings, are the closest relatives to elephants, that elephants will hold your hand, and that they always remember, remember and return to places that hold meaning. I learned that double fencing keeps out lions, and that Lola has a tendency to wander into the huts and introduce herself to new guests. I also learned that Lola was a leopard. Day two was also pretty interesting. The animals graze boldly in the plains. It is not hot enough to warrant hiding from the sun. They have woken long before us, and already their tracks have been replaced by others even newer still. Their movements mark the land, and the signs are everywhere. Cracked branches, torn flora, rampaged groves and trampled grass. Scattered amongst these are even clearer signs. Skulls and pelvises, femurs and rib cages, devoured and picked clean. The lions and leopards have their first kill and the hyenas follow after in the night. The rain reduces everything to mud. The strength of the downpour carves gullies into the land, flooding the path. New rivers form from once dry land. And the land before us has shifted, eerie in its subtlety. Yet, it is enough to block our way and cause the wild to scatter and seek shelter. Only in this deafening downpour do I begin to see its space, the expanse before me, it's evacuation and newfound emptiness. The rain crashes, but it is this void that drowns me in its silence. And I find I want to fill it, fill the space. But how and with what? Things of tangible material, or rather something more complex and abstract, like pride and confidence, love or need. But what then, when time resumes and life refuses to stay motionless, must we then tend to all that wear and tear? I shake my head, clearing it of such thoughts. Perhaps it's not a question of substitution at all, but rather perspective. To look out across the plain and for the first time, notice not its limits, but our own. After all, it's not the rain that blurs our sight. We're not known for making wise decisions. We act and react, protecting ourselves against incalculable loss while daring to believe beyond plausible hope. Fight or flight... We are our instincts. It is time to feel, to understand and act. The biting wind changes direction and the eucalyptus spreads, their alien seed pollinating the distant landscape, lapping up the groundwater. And like me, they don't belong. And I remember this feeling of misplacing myself. It happened once before in the mist, and so many times since. The crashing sounds of a storm at sea, and the mystifying shroud of things unseen. Magnificence and danger, this is how I remember the sea, 
neither blue nor green or any comprehensible color, but rather endless in its depth, a surface tension in the world below. We cannot see beyond the storm. It breaks and rages and rises high into the sky. The salt tears at our skin and burns our eyes. Open or shut, our vision impairs. Left alone in this mist of colliding worlds and tidal tensions beyond our comprehension. Here in the yellow woods we are alone, protected from our predators. But still, there are bones. Nature must maintain its order. The sun has set and the fire cracks apart the smoking wood. Our world has shrunk to its circumference, stories lasting the length of the flame's flicker. We speak of chakras and a privatization, of climate change and alternative energy, of conservatives and democrats, of magnetic poles and realignments, of borders and topics we can no longer see. And in this heat and in this fire, our words set the world ablaze. For just beyond, the looming light holds back the darkness. Just beyond the light, there is double fencing. And just beyond the fencing, there are lions. We've come across a fence, only now realizing we have crossed onto another's land. The air stills. Freshly laundered sheets fall slack against the line and the sun beats down, stamping out all shadows. There is no welcome here. The fever tree has a short lifespan. They grow as quickly as they die in malaria-infected swamplands. Distinctively sharp, straight white spikes spawn from its spine. But these trees are cut. They are gathered and arranged into a perfect circle. With neither root nor rope to ground them, they stand impossibly. At its centre is a bull skull, tied to a post and picked clean, bleached white in the unrelenting sun. There is magic here. We back away, but our eyes stay fixed upon the skull. They say it breeds protection. I wonder for whom and against what. Do these spirits work in the natural world or just beyond? After all, in this moment standing here, we are the encroachers. We are the unexpected and the unwelcomed. This much is clear. This much we understand. There is magic here. I have seen many rituals, fires and dances that call for rain, for crops, safe passage and guidance. But I don't know these metaphors. And that's the problem with symbols. What represents safety and sacrifice can look a lot like death and sickness, and vice versa. But there is magic here, and it's not mine to understand. Incantations that bear repeating, that grow inside you like an unyielding chant, escalating until they cannot help but be heard. There is magic here. Tell me of your ghosts. New episodes every Wednesday. Don't forget to tune in as we make our way west. Each week, I'll post images, photos of my travels, the resulting artworks, and some of the behind-the-scenes printing processes as part of a visual journey to go along with each episode. They'll be posted on my Instagram account, the link's in the description, or visit my website, christinachan.com, for the more polished, finished works. And until next week, happy travels.